Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you are having a good weekend, and I also hope that all of you had a great St. Patrick's Day holiday. And I must say, March Madness, in regards to the NCAA tournament, has really lived up to its uh, standards. But then again, it seems like each year when March Madness, or I should say the NCAA tournament, takes place, unique things happen all the time. Unfortunately, I remember it very well five years ago when the University of Virginia became the first number one seed to ever lose to a 16 seed. Now, who would have thought yesterday, five years later, in the present day, that history would repeat itself where another number one seed lost? And this time being Purdue, losing to uh, Fairleigh Dickinson. I couldn't believe it. But it just goes to show you that throughout um, March Madness, that Davids are always capable of slewing Goliaths. It doesn't always have to mean uh, 16s against one. I saw it the other day when Princeton, being a 15 seed, upset number two seed Arizona. Another example of David slewing Goliath. Uh, but one thing I probably could say is that. Um, when the University of Virginia lost five years ago, I don't think anybody in their wildest dreams would have thought a year later they would have pulled off the 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 most improbable of achievements, knowing that here they made his, made history for all the wrong reasons, being the first number one seed to ever lose to a 16 seed. In the following year later, in 2019, they ended up winning the whole thing. To me, that was truly the ultimate act of redemption, and it may not be something that I'll probably ever see again in my lifetime. In other words, yes, Purdue was a number one seed, and yesterday they lost to a 16 seed, making them the se the second number one seed to ever lose, but there's no guarantee that Purdue would be able to replicate what Virginia did the year after. So, you know, yes, it was unfortunate to see... Uh, my team, uh, Virginia, lose, but, you know, life goes on, and I think all of us should realize that there's more to life than sports. Uh, I think we could say the same about other other things, too, because I know I've told you all in um, other podcast segments where I've often said that there's more to life than podcasting, and how true that is as well. But one thing I do know is that um, even the most talented of basketball players are often prone to making mistakes and clutch and game clutch decisions. I saw that on Thursday with uh, UVA's Kihei Clark. He passed the ball to Reese Beekman, and Reese Beekman passed it back to Clark. Clark, um, he uh, heaved one in the air because he didn't want a 10-second violation, only for the uh, Furman player to intercept the ball and dribble it all the way down the court to pass it off to his teammate and Teammate uh, made an improbable shot that gave his um, that gave Furman the ultimate win. But you know, there again, um, you know, life goes on, and even as Coach Tony Bennett said, uh, the sun will rise tomorrow. In other words, you know, sometimes in life, some things aren't meant to be, but life does go on. So, one thing I do know is that uh, we have uh, a lot more to. Um, be prepared for in our next uh, podcast segment uh, episode uh, to the Boston Massacre of Family History by Serena Zabin. And this uh, episode 
we're going to learn about um, whether or not British officers were prone to engaging in um, improper acts, or I should say, engage, engaging in um, in decisions that led to uh, results that were, um, in our eyes, would have been seen as unbecoming, but or what we might think of as being reckless. We will also um, learn of um, of situations where um, desertion took place and the um, outcomes. In other words, when soldiers deserted, we need we would have to learn about the impacts that it had on the army as a whole. And if uh, deserters were caught, we have to learn about um, what kind of uh, proper punishment tactics were implemented. After having read this book, I was really blown away uh, by the severity of the puni of punishments endured by even amongst British soldiers. I think it's fair to say that even the textbooks always had us believe that the British were the ones implementing all the bad punishments on her subjects, being the colonists. Well, sure, especially when it came to the form of taxation without representation, but I had to remind myself that even uh, British officers impose stiff punishments on their uh, subjects, in this case being those whom served below the commanding officers, were not um, immune from um, decisions that uh, ultimately backfired on them. So we have a lot of ground to uh, cover, and I look forward to sharing with you all here uh, what we're going to be discussing. So uh, we're going to uh, start with our first leadoff question, and it's the following. Were British officers prone to engaging in acts considered reckless, or some would say as immoral? Of course, I'm sure some of you are going to ask, what could we best define as being immoral or reckless by 18th century standards? And I should point out that um, we can't compare 18th century standards of reckless conduct to today's um, modern-day world, and I know I shouldn't get into anything political, but it might be fair to say that in the 18th century, when actions uh, did take place that were reckless and immoral, uh, consequences did happen, and they were taken care of pretty quickly without having to go through so many other loopholes like we see in today's um, modern-day world where I don't know if uh, accountability is always uh, there. Again, I'm not trying to be political, but it's just something to uh, be reminded of uh, in terms of how uh, people from previous centuries lived compared to what we see in today's unstable uh, world. So the question was, again, were British officers uh, prone to engaging in acts considered reckless or I should say immoral? Well, the answer is yes. And there was one uh, particular um, case that I thought uh, was worth um, mentioning to you all. It happened. Uh, it happened to uh, involve a fellow by the name of Corporal Archibald Browning of the 14th Regiment. The incident took place in the summer of 1769, where it was learned, or I should say, revealed upon during the Court of General Sessions in the summer of 1770, being August of 1770. And, you know, we should keep in mind, too, that um, just because an incident occurred the year before, it didn't automatically mean that the court probably would have had enough time to have uh, 
taken up the case the same year, but regardless, it's been brought to the court's attention, and they are um, they are uh, reviewing, uh, members of the court, I should say, are reviewing this matter, and they are trying to um, decide on a uh, proper uh, punishment for the uh, guilty party. But we might be surprised to find out who's going to be uh, receiving a greater punishment. In other words, should we be rushing to judgment here just because it involves a British officer? Maybe not. So nonetheless, this uh, particular incident involved Corporal Archibald Browning of the 14th Regiment from the summer of 1769, where, where it was learned, or, or I should say revealed upon, during the Court of General Sessions in August of 1770 that a Boston woman, in other words, a local Bostonian woman named and pay very careful attention to the lady's first name, Thomason. Not Thomas, folks, but Thomason, T-H-O-M-A-S-I-N. The woman's name being Thomason Charlton. She confessed to having sexual intercourse with Corporal Archibald Browning that resulted in the birth of having a baby boy. Well, let me ask you this. Were, um, do you all think that Thomas and Charlton, or Miss Thomas and Charlton, and Corporal Archibald Browning were married? No, they weren't married. So that's one issue right there. The court is more concerned about Charlton's actions, or about Miss Charlton's actions. How so? Well, it was one thing for her to have had a child with Corporal Robert or Corporal Archibald Browning, but the court has learned now that this was not the first time that she had had a child. And it's not so much that this wasn't the first time that she had a child, folks. It this the, the child that she had with Corporal Browning marks the second instance in other words, she's that. In, in other words, Miss Charlton now has two children out of wedlock. In this case, illegitimate children. And as I said a, a, a minute ago, Miss Charlton and uh, Corporal Browning aren't married. And is it fair to say that Miss Charlton and the other man whose name was not revealed or simply wasn't mentioned, they too aren't married? So, it's one thing, you know, it's one thing for a married uh, man and woman to have a child, but for a, but for a woman who's not married and starts flirting with a man who is single, bachelor, and the two of them engage in actions that aren't um, appropriate, knowing that they're not married, and look what it leads to. Well, the court, believe it or not, whereas the court is more concerned about Miss Charlton's behavior, given that she's now got two children out of wedlock by two, diff by two different men, the court is less concerned about Corporal Browning's behavior. Why? I'm sure some of you, some of you are thinking, why is the court less concerned about Corporal Browning's behavior? Could it be that perhaps Corporal Browning, Corporal Archibald Browning, I should say, could it be that Corporal Browning 
was not aware of Miss Charlton's past. Yes, maybe it's fair to say that Miss Charlton uh, did not tell this corporal that she has a child that she had a child from another man. And you know, it's like that old saying: you never know what skeletons are hiding in one's closet. Well, it seems like Miss Charlton has skeletons in her closet. So, yes, uh, for Corporal Browning, it is it would be very fair to say that he did not know of Miss Charlton's past records. Thomas and Charlton, or Miss Thomas and Charlton, confessed to the court that she did have more than one child. Okay, it's one thing now for Miss uh, Charlton to admit to the court that she did have more than one child, and it's probably fair to say that she did admit to the court that she had lied to Corporal Archibald Browning about her past, meaning that she had had another child out of wedlock. So what kind of punishment do you think the court is going to impose upon Miss um, Charlton? Well, one option they could do is they could brand her on her thumb, I'm not sure what letter they're going to put on her um, on her thumb, but that was one way of punishing people who uh, did things in colonial times that were unacceptable in the greater society. I do know that if one stole a man's horse, meaning that if that if a man's horse was stolen, it was like the equivalent of uh, robbing him of his livelihood because, you know, not everybody owns a horse, but when you steal one's horse. How else is that individual, being the horse owner, going to get around from point A to point B? So the uh, the guilty party, if they are found obviously guilty of uh, theft, they'll get branded on their thumb with the letter T, meaning that no matter where they go and other people see that they've been that the individual's been branded on their thumb, that means that that person committed theft at some point in their life. And that person will also be remembered for the rest of his or her life, knowing that they um, had stolen from someone else. Well, it turns out that the court did not brand Miss Charlton. However, Miss Charlton did get, did receive ten lashes on her back. Ten lashes, folks. That's you know, some people might say, well, isn't that cruel and unusual punishment? Yes, we could say that is, but at the same time, the court is trying to teach the greater society a lesson of how uh, one is to conduct themselves, not only in public, but perhaps in private. The court might also be trying to teach the greater society that it's not appropriate, regardless of um, whether one's a man or a woman, to be lying to the other um, gender about their uh, past, or just to lie in general because, uh, you know, when you lie to someone, regardless of the circumstances, it does, um, it does alter things for better or for worse. It, it, also, um, it also causes um, a lot of mistrust. As for uh, Corporal Browning, no charges were filed against him. However, it probably is fair to say that the court would have been smart enough to have told Corporal Arch Archibald Browning, number one, they would have told him, hey, look, you have a you have a duty now to uh, support this child, even though the child's born out of wedlock. You still have to be held responsible for your actions. But but the bottom line is is that you know don't do any don't make the same mistakes that Miss uh, Charlton has made. Um, in other words, don't 
don't lie, uh, don't don't do anything that's unbecoming because if you if you uh, engage in actions in the future that are unbecoming, that are far more unbecoming than what you've done now, if you if you do something that's worse, then you too uh, could get lashes on your back or perhaps an even stiffer punishment. So I think for Corporal Browning, this was a good lesson for him, and it's one that um, that he should not take for granted because not everybody would have been as fortunate as as Corporal Browning was in that no charges were filed against him. How many uh, number of uh, local uh, Bostonian women do you all think um, married British soldiers between 1768 and 1772, between this five-year period? Well, I can tell you this much. It's less than 50, but the number is 40. 40 is, represents the total number of local women in Boston whom married British soldiers between the years of 1768 and 1772. However, during the same time period, there were three times as many women whom went about marrying civilian men. So that, that to me, is a very uh, unique uh, comparison, to say the least, right there. Hang tight for just a moment. As I've said before, I'd say it again, nothing beats a nice glass of hot tea. But, of course, if I was living in Boston in colonial, t in colonial times, especially during this time in the 1770s, I probably would have been chased along the streets left and right like there was no tomorrow because most Bostonians were opposed to that infamous uh, tea that uh, that the ships, being the Dartmouth, the Eleanor, and the Beaver, tried to um, bring into Boston only to have close to um, just over 340 chests of tea uh, dumped into uh, Boston Harbor, or I should say Boston Harbor, if I lived up in Massachusetts. But... I think it's fair to say we've come come a long way with tea um, since those days. Our next question is the following. Was it common for non-related adults in the 18th century or in 18th century times to serve as godparents to their friends' children? So in other words, uh, adults who are friends with other couples, and yet those, um, those uh, adults whom are not related but uh, they still um, not only know their friends' children, but it could be fair to say that they have um, served as good role models, good you know, good influential um, people whom the children can look up to. So, was it common for non-related adults in the 18th, in 18th century times to serve as godparents to their friends' children? Now, the answer is yes. What I found interesting here with regards to this question was that it was a um, very common practice involving parents whom were of Anglican faith or when I say Anglican I think of you know the modern day Episcopal Church but yes most notably um, amongst parents of the Anglican faith given they would often ask three or four other adults to serve the role of godparents to their children and I think it's important uh, to keep in mind, you know, here we are asking why so many adults, like three or four other adults. Well, number one, life expectancy isn't high. And two, it's probably good to have at least uh, two sets of backups. All right. If Johnny and Sally lose their parents and Johnny and Sally go live, live with Mr. and Mrs. Jones, 
And all of a sudden, a couple of years later, Mr. and Mrs. Jones become ill, and they die within six months of, each, of one another. The next set of parents, need the next alternative um, couple, need to be ready to go in case anything unexpected happens. So it's very it was very common back then to have multiple um multiple couples or individuals serve the role of godparent or godparents uh given that you know life expectancy wasn't high and yes we could say in today's time that there's probably nothing wrong with maybe having additional sets of godparents for you know based upon what some families choose but it's much different compared to what it would have been in 18th century times. Uh, I do know that godparents uh, served multiple uh, purposes through networks from obligations based upon written agreements to aspirational purposes where a private could ask his sergeant or a sergeant's wife to fulfill the role of godparent duty as a means of respect. Some godparents were friends where their intentions sought to build upon an existing relationship where the ties, or I, should, or I should say the bonds, grew stronger. So in other words, yes, you've got godparents who are friends, but by becoming godparents, their intentions are to um, build upon what is in the current existing state. And I think it's fair to say, and I should point this out too, that um, some of our forefathers lost parents at young, at very young ages. Uh, I know that uh, James Monroe lost both of his parents when he was fairly young, and he went to live with an uncle nearby whom pretty much uh, reared him to the point where James Monroe viewed this uncle as second father. Now, Thomas Jefferson, on the other hand, he was 14 years old when his dad died. Of course, at the age of 14 in that day and time, Jefferson was considered an adult. But we should be reminded, folks, that, um, that even our forefathers experienced uh, tragedies at very young ages. Uh, George Washington's father died when he was 11 years old, and he was... Um, one of his uh, half-brothers, being Lawrence uh, Washington, uh, pretty much took George in. George pretty much saw Lawrence like a, a father figure, and sadly, Lawrence died from tuberculosis when George was only 20 years old. And for those of you who, uh, who are curious to know how Mount Vernon got its name, Mount Vernon was named after a general for whom Lawrence Washington served under in the British military, being uh, General Edward Vernon, I want to say. And that's for how uh, the Mount Vernon estate got its name. And when uh, Lawrence Washington and his wife didn't have any children of their own, but when Lawrence's wife died, George inherited the estate. Of course, when he inherited the, state, the estate, it wasn't like what we see it in today's time when going to visit uh, but George Washington did rent out, he, he rented under uh, his half-brother Lawrence, but fully did not inherit the estate and the other uh, properties nearby uh, along the Potomac River until after Lawrence's uh, wife died. So, um, again, our forefathers experienced um, misfortunes at young ages when losing um, 
not only a parent, but both parents. The years between 1768 to 1772 saw more than, a, more than 100 soldiers bring their little ones into Boston's churches where they got baptized. Baptismal records have helped maintain connections that parents made for their children, which have helped tell relationships uh, that townspeople formed with military families, including relationships involving both men and women playing, or I should say, serving the role of godparents. So I think it's fair to say by now we've kind of established um, some important uh, fundamental um, aspects in realizing that uh, not all of uh, the British troops who came over, say from uh, Ireland to Halifax, Nova Scotia, and then 400 miles south to Boston by water, I think it's fair to say by now that not all of the British soldiers were terrible people. And it might be fair to say that some officers weren't bad either, too. But we also are going to have to be reminded here shortly that, um, that when it comes to um, establishing order, when it comes to um, capturing deserters, that punishments will be doled out. Punishments will be made public. And perhaps the punishments that are being doled out in public are to serve as a reminder of who truly is in power and who's not. So our next question is the following. What had become the topic of discussion during the first two weeks of the British Army's presence in Boston? What do you think would have been the biggest uh, topic of discussion during the first two weeks of the British Army's presence in Boston? had to do with punishment tactics used by the army against its own troops. Yeah, I, I don't see how that could go um, unnoticed. And we're going to talk um, about a fellow uh, private officer, or not private officer, a private soldier. And, and I know that most of you, not most of you, but all of you would not know his name, and, and that's fine. I didn't even know about this guy's name until having read the book. But uh, when I read about this and what I'm going to be discussing with you all next, I mean, it is, it's powerful. It's not powerful for the better, folks. It's, power, it's, it's powerful in the, in the sense that we have to be reminded of what happens when, um, when a violation occurs. So the big uh, discussion, as we know, it's involving the punishment tactics used by the Army against its own troops, but the punishment of Private Daniel Rogers was the primary topic of conversation, which included the matter itself being discussed in letters and newspapers. So it's more than just word by mouth about a particular incident. Incidents that can be considered profound, um, incidents that could be considered to leave a scar. Yeah, you can um, get your thoughts out in letters and including uh, revealing about it in a newspaper. And if you don't want your identity to be revealed, if, in other words, if you're going to be writing the uh, article in this newspaper and you don't want your identity to be revealed, use, um, use an alias or use, um, use a fictitious name because that's how a lot of people wrote in those days because they knew that there was opposition and if they didn't want to be threatened, if they didn't want to be sued for libel or some kind of character defamation, they wrote in um, they wrote under fictitious uh, names, pseudonym, 
So Private Daniel Rogers was part of the uh, he was part of the uh, first group of uh, troops that came into uh, Boston in October of 1768. And in October of 1768, just less than two weeks after the 29th and 14th regiments arrived into Boston from Halifax, Private Rogers was tied to a wooden post in the center of Boston Common. After a court-martial hearing ruled, he was to get... Listen to this, folks. This is, um, this is a, a ridiculous number. But the court ruled this. The court, the, per the court-martial, the court-martial hearing ruled that Private Daniel Rogers was to get a thousand lashes... And I'm sure some of you all are thinking to yourselves, what what in the world would have constituted this man to receive that many lashes? Well, I can tell you this much. He didn't get a thousand lashes. He got 170, folks. Can you imagine getting 170 lashes? Five to ten would have been excruciating. But 170... I, I, I think it's fair to say that somebody by that point would almost bleed to death to the point where the chances of survival are like at about 1% probably at most. And we're not talking little scars, folks. We're not talking about like little 101 cuts where you put some Neosporin on. I mean, I've watched documentaries where uh, troops were lashed on both sides. Of course, we always want to think the British are the ones that are the villains whom are doing this, but no, we have to be reminded that even on the um, American side, there there were those whom uh, engaged in actions that they weren't supposed to, and um, punishments had to be netted or had to be implemented or doled out to where it did involve uh, whipping. I don't know if they, uh, I don't believe they went as far as a thousand lashes, but the bottom line is that uh, punishments did occur on both sides of the conflict when that time came when, you know, after shots were fired around the world. So let's find out a little bit more as to what constituted um, Private Rogers getting as many lashes as he did. But before we get there, we've got to figure this part out here. Officers with commissions, including privates, all from Boston, whom served in the British Army during the Seven Years' War, were no strangers when it came to witnessing military punishments. One Massachusetts private noted having observed 71 whippings along with six executions during a seven-month period in the year of 1757. 71 whippings and six executions over a seven-month period. So, okay... I, I think I could do the math here, folks. 71 um, whippings over a seven-month period, that's at least um, 10 whippings a month at best, or just over 10. And six executions during a seven-month period, that would obviously mean right there that there's one execution taking place per month with with one of those months where none have happened. The case of Private uh, Daniel Rogers was not one where he had not fallen asleep while on guard duty. Okay, so we can rule that out. Nor did it pertain to getting drunk while performing the necessary duties. Okay, 
So we know that he didn't fall asleep. We know that he wasn't um, drinking. Nor did it involve acting out defiantly towards a commanding officer. Okay, so if he didn't um, get drunk while performing necessary duties, and if he had not fallen asleep while on guard duty, and if he did not um, verbally abuse his commanding officer, then what could he have done so wrong to um, get as many lashes as he did? Well, instead, the case centered upon Private Rogers, or Private Rogers is wanting to see his family. Yes, folks, Private Rogers is a Massachusetts native. He's no stranger to war. I mean, he fought in the Seven Years' War by serving with the 27th Regiment. In 1767, Private Rogers was transferred regiments by joining the 29th, as he wished to stay in America. His family lived in Marshfield, outside of Boston. October of 1768, uh, Private Rogers took up temporary lodging along Boston Common in the midst of in the midst of the housing issues. He slipped out one night to where someone noticed his absence, and because that individual noticed his absence, he immediately reported it to the commanding officer, or I should say commanding officers in, on duty, or I should say in charge. Sadly, we have a rush to judgment here, folks. Private Rogers is now considered a, des a deserter, a traitor. And yet, it's probably fair to say that a, a good number of... It could be fair to say that some of his own uh, comrades in the 29th Regiment of Foot don't even know that he's a native of Massachusetts. What does that tell you right there, folks, that, that, you know, we think sometimes that everybody knows where everyone's from, or we think that everybody knows that, oh, uh, Private Rogers, oh, yeah, he, he's from Massachusetts, he's nearby, uh, he wouldn't do anything wrong. Even back then, folks, from within a unit, there, it is fair to say that there was a rush to judgment. Private Rogers's actions led to the colonel of the 29th Regiment making a public scene out of Private Rogers, including other privates whom violated uh, rules, or I should say protocol. After the um, lashes had um, been administered, Private Rogers was um, sent to a, a hospital where he recovered. I mean, obviously... We're not talking like modern-day hospitals where he has his own room all to himself, but Private Rogers' family, most notably his sisters, visited him after the public whipping incident to where they both literally fainted after seeing how terrible of a condition their brother was in. And you know, if that had been a family member of mine who had been uh, severely um, whipped to death like that, I probably would have passed out myself. Now, do you all think uh, the Massachusetts courts would have followed the same, the Massachusetts general courts would have followed the same procedures as the British Army had administered with regards to um, imposing that many uh, number of lashes on someone? 
No, believe it or not, folks, uh, the Massachusetts courts had a limit of up to 39 lashes under corporal punishment procedure guidelines. 39. And we learned that uh, Th Miss Thomas and Charlton got 10 lashes. She got the minimum. So if anybody committed that egregious of an offense, then yes, the maximum you could get up to was 39. And who's to say that if you got 39 lashes that you might even survive? I don't know. But the best way not to know would be to obviously not do something that would, um, that would result in even the minimum number of lashes being, say, 10. So besides uh, Private Rogers' family's anger towards the severity of the punishment issued, another... Um, young uh, gal by the name of Dorothy Murray, or I should say Dolly Murray. She was the daughter to one of uh, Governor Francis Bernard's staunchest supporters. She became very disturbed by the public scene regarding levels of military discipline in Boston. And it just so happens that um, Dolly Murray was engaged to a British troop, but yet she opposed harsh disciplinary tactics. Dolly herself went as far as advising a younger sister to stay put in the countryside where she, she would be immune from witnessing barbaric punishment measures up close and personal. So when you think of the countryside of uh, Massachusetts, how about, you know, anywhere, say, 10 miles or greater than 10 miles outside of Boston? I, to me, when I think of perhaps countryside, outside of Boston, I think of probably like Worcester, you know, being 50 miles away. So I think it's smart that uh, Miss Dolly Murray went as far as advising her uh, younger sister to simply just stay put where she's at, because if she goes into town and witnesses these uh, barbaric uh, punishment practices up close and personal, it's going to leave a profound scar on her. But I think it'd be fair to say that it would have left a profound scar on anybody but again, if you saw that in person, you would definitely want to make sure that you thought long and hard um, before doing something that uh, would have uh, negative repercussions. But at the same time, was it? do I personally believe that the uh, punishment was appropriate for um, Private Rogers to have um, endured 170 uh, lashes? No. No, to me, that was a little too um, excessive. It was uh, what I think cruel and unusual. But if he were to have gotten lashes, how many do you think he should have gotten? At the minimum, between 5 and 10. To me, 5 and 10 would have been enough of a, a, a measure right there to say, hey, this is what's going to happen. I mean, this, you know, after getting 5 or 10 lashes, that ought to be enough of a lesson to say, hey, don't desert out of the middle of the night. Don't leave out of the middle of the night without permission. And if this does happen again, then expect... Um, a bigger punishment. And if you're not careful, it might be even be execution. I know that sounds barbaric, folks, but maybe at the same time, the military's trying to teach lessons. They're, maybe they're trying to teach some form of uh, law and order stability, because, given that they are in um, unknown um, territory. The Committee of, um, of Bostonians requested by... Um, re the Committee of Bostonians, I should say, requested a Lieutenant Colonel Carr to spare Private Rogers from further excessive punishment. It just so happens that Lieutenant Colonel Carr 
approved of the uh, Committee of Bostonians' request. The re remaining lashes were halted all for good. 170 is way too excessive, folks, but thank heavens Lieutenant Colonel Carr had some common sense not to go any further. Corporal uh, John Moyes of the 14th Regiment served under uh, Captain uh, Brabazon O'Hara, and I think we all learned about him from a previous podcast, that uh, captain, whom was no stranger to um, whipping uh, those uh, below him in terms of privates or um, officers who had not, say, attained uh, the rank of uh, captain. But uh, Captain Brabazon O'Hara was one of those officers whom was more concerned about his own personal well-being versus that of his troops, or I should say the soldiers enlisted below him. It turns out that Captain Brabazon O'Hara spent more time away from his troops, which meant the greater the numbers were amongst rank and file of the 14th Regiment whom began deserting. John Moore was the first to leave the 14th Regiment just, a, just after having arrived into Boston, listen to this folks, less than a week, in this case three days prior John Moore's exodus led members of the 29th to do the same where four men left on October 5, 1768, another three October 9th, seven more on October 10th. Thirty soldiers total, folks, had abandoned their regiments by the end of October of 1768. Desertion was seen as something to be frowned upon. I think the biggest question now is how can these top-level commanding officers curtail this problem because now all of a sudden if you've got 30 um, troops having deserted at the end of October that to us may seem like a small number but if 30 have deserted who's not to say that another 30 or more will desert in the months ahead and into the start of the new year we've got to curtail this problem our next question is the following does desertion or let alone an act of deserting, impact an army. I believe that's a no-brainer, but um, but I I think it's fair to say that we can all um, say yes to that question. Yes, considering 101, 101 answer here would be um, considering the amount of time and effort that is required to maintain troop stability. And think about it, folks. It's one thing to recruit soldiers, but it, but the recruitment practice is more than just "I need you to come enlist in the army." Think about the incentives that uh, that commanding officers above or recruiters above can go about doing to lure uh, troops in. Like, hey, you know, if you're looking for um, more um, secure work, then come uh, join the army. We can provide that for you. So. Okay, it's one thing to um, offer that promise and you join, but all of a sudden you're not happy and you leave. Then how are they? It's not like they can just call up and say, "Hey, you know, uh, find me um, X, Y, and Z uh, candidates who are interested, so that I can find someone to replace John Smith and Tom Jones." So it's bad enough if one person deserts, but when you have thirty um, deserters in a regiment. Think about now all of a sudden you've got to find 30 more uh, people in the unit to fill the missing void. And that just doesn't happen overnight, folks. So, 
Yes, consider the amount of time and effort required to maintain troop stability, but once the soldiers abandon in large numbers, replacing those troops uh, takes up additional time where money alone could have been spent on other important pressing matters. <laughs> and we say that even in today's modern world from a political standpoint. The first 17 months in the town of Boston, being from October of 1768 to February of 1770, saw 89 men desert from the 29th Regiment, meaning the annual desertion rate stood at 10%. The standard motives for desertion usually ranged from not liking a superior officer to getting burnt out with army life in general, but soldiers occupying Boston abandoned the army on the grounds of making new friends, marrying into families. Either way, it's, um, it's still uh, something that the commanding officers are frowning upon. October 12, 1768, up to 20 soldiers had deserted uh, Captain Charles Fordyce's... Um, I, t I take it back. Up to 20 soldiers had deserted come October 12, 1768. Captain Charles Fordyce of the 14th Regiment sent one sergeant and three men to look for the deserters. How did they go about uh, disguising themselves, folks? You know, I, I think it would be fair to say that if you're going to try to track down these deserters, you're not going to go out to the countryside dressed in your British clothing attire. In other words, don't give yourself away. So the one sergeant and three men dressed in civilian clothes to prevent drawing attention. The journey for capturing deserters went west of Boston into a town called Framingham, which is still in existence today. The undercover men approached a woman whom advised that a nearby farmer had hired a deserter a few days previously and pointed out where the nearby farmer's farmhouse stood. It just so happened that a fellow by the name of Richard Eames was the farmer nearby whom happened to be one of the handful of deserters that the uh, sergeant and three men were uh, looking for. So Richard Eames was arrested on the spot where the party of four took their suspect prisoner right away back to Boston. He was back in Boston a day later. Pretty quick, but think about it. They didn't have time to... Uh, they didn't have time to waste. A court-martial uh, hearing uh, did take place and ruled that uh, Richard Eames was guilty and was to be sentenced to death by a firing squad comprised of troops within his own regiment, being the 14th Regiment. In other words, those who didn't desert were, would be the ones that would fire upon their... their um, I guess they would call him now their ex-comrade, knowing that he deserted them. General Gage, good old General Thomas Gage, who is the commander of all North American, um, of all British troops in North America, I should say, General Gage required all soldiers in Boston present at the time of execution. I think General Gage wants a lesson to be taught. October 31st, 1768, prior to dawn, or I should say sunrise, all soldiers stood in formation as Richard Eames awaited his fate. 
Bostonians, shocked from publicity of the first incident involving Private Daniel Rogers' flogging at the Boston Common, multiple women pleaded with Lieutenant Colonel William Dalrymple, the lead commander of the 14th Regiment, they um, pleaded with, with Lieutenant Colonel Dalrymple in requesting that he show leniency for a first-time offender, but the request was denied. Without any legal counsel at his disposal, Richard Eames provided a defense of his own personal actions relying upon the attention of 12 Army captains, including Brabazon O'Hara. Eames first explained how he was upset at his captain, whom still owed him back pay, being payment for work done in the past. The witness testifying on uh, behalf of Richard Eames did say that all accounts had been up to date. In other words, there was nothing left outstanding in the books. Eames admitted he left because he feared his captain would strike, or let alone, I should say, assault him for making mistakes during public processions. Another witness came forward saying Eames made no more mistakes compared to anyone else. In other words, Eames himself was not immune from mistakes like anyone else, and had anyone else made the same mistakes while out in procession like Richard Eames did, they would have um, met the same um, punishment. But in other words, nobody else was uh, shorthanded. It was all you know considered fair game. So, uh, 7 a.m. on October 31st of 7 a.m., 1768, Richard Eames is all dressed in white, or I should say in white attire, with a regimental chaplain by his side. He awaited the inevitable. Death by firing squad from comrades within the 14th Regiment, and at 7 a.m., the firing squad shot and killed Private Richard Eames. Corporal John Moyes and the rest of the soldiers marched around Private Eames's dead body. Corporal Moyes, along with others, wondered if the firing squad was, if use of firing squad was the only foreseen way to desert the army altogether. In other words, were we better to be out of our misery if we were just executed via a firing squad? In other words, we wouldn't have to endure any more hell from our superior commanding officers. Yeah, we could desert but there's no guarantee we would be safe if we got deser if we deserted. There's no guarantee that even if we deserted, that someone whom was part of the deserting party would um, rat us out and uh, turn us back over to our commanding officers, where uh, further punishments would be doled out, ultimately leading to uh, death, perhaps uh, death by firing squad, if if the um, if it required um, going before a court martial hearing. So I think it's fair to say, folks, that we have to be reminded that just because one is serving in the king's army, that even those soldiers, being that of privates, are not immune from having made mistakes. Is it fair to say that Lieutenant Colonel William Dalrymple did not want to make excuses for every first-time offender? You know, um... It's a miracle that Private Daniel Rogers survived all of those lashings. 
because I said earlier, if anybody survived, maybe the chances are that it would have been like 1% at best. But I think for Lieutenant Colonel William Dalrymple and most notably General Thomas Gage, for them, they're now at a point where, okay, if we start making excuses for every soldier, then how can the British Army as a whole function without distractions coming from all different directions? In other words, there has to be um, order, there has to be uh, measures put in place that will serve as deterrence so that other soldiers won't think so that other sol soldiers will think twice before making the same mistakes. In other words, we can't have too many people or we can't have too many uh, troops carrying baggage to the point where their baggage has um, a negative impact on the rest of their squadron to where the rest of the squadron suffers because of their individual actions that uh, do have um, negative implications. It's a whole lot of um, speculation. There's a whole lot of uh, questions behind all of this. But I can tell you this much, folks, that when um, what I learned was that uh, private, uh, when Private Richard Eames was executed, it was the last uh, public execution that did take place during the time that the British occupied uh, Boston. In other words, it was the last public execution of a soldier on their end. Desertion wasn't confined to just being an army issue, but viewed more so as a direct result between military and civilian relations. Once soldiers disappeared from Boston, both British army officers, including civilian opponents, all focused on the political impacts behind desertion, which worried and yet satisfied everyone on both ends of the spectrum. So in other words, those whom are worrying about the desertions, it's not so much that they are loyalists, those whom are worried are those serving the king. In other words, the officers, General Thomas Gage, they're worried about maintaining discipline, order, preserving what they have of the rank and file that, that is still in line, and hoping that the, that the existing rank and file won't get out of line. The supporters are those whom are happy to see those deserting, and not just coming over to the side of the, um, of the uh, what we would eventually call patriots, but deserters who no longer feel unified behind the cause that the cause and purpose of why they're even there in other words deserters are getting burnt out they want something different they want to know what it's like to live outside of the military world well we've covered a lot of ground in this episode and when i'm back on the air again next we're going to learn a little bit more about um what we've uh, discussed uh, being what's called uh, absent without leave. And we might also have time for some other um, surprising um, stuff that will um, eventually lead us up to um, those uh, three weeks being from mid-February to um, the inevitable of uh, March 5th of 1770. Thank you for your time as always, and thank you for being such ardent listeners, and I look forward to being back on the air again next time with you all. Wherever you all may live, continue to stay safe.